0: This is being human i 'd like to welcome to the show David Anderson David uh, Hi, Rich. I, thank you no, thank you. So I first came across your work um, in Kanban in the Kanban system um, uh, through seeing your conferences and then reading some of your material online and it 's been a massive influence in, in my work in terms of helping teams and companies achieve better flow in their organizations, you're a prolific writer, a speaker, you founded the Lean Kanban University, um, so there's so much I'd love to get into in this episode. Right. I'm so grateful to have you. Um, so I know that yeah, my initial connection with you, as I said, was around Kanban, but I know your most recent book, Fit for Purpose, is, is full of some very interesting ideas which complement a lot of the Kanban ideas. So I wonder if we should start there with, with the Fit for Purpose book and what is the purpose uh, sure, of uh, that book? Sure. Like. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. so tell us a bit more about the, the main premise of that book and, and, and the message. So the, the origins
1: of it, actually from uh, teaching Kanban coaching and someone in the class would stick their hand up and it became a bit of a pattern and they'd stick the hand up and the question would be, how do we know whether the change that we're implementing or recommending with the client, how do we know it's actually an improvement? And there's a sort of variant of that question, which is how do you know that whatever you're doing for your customer, some change in your service level or a change in your product design, so you, you change a feature in your product. And you obviously did that because you thought it was a good idea. How do you know whether the customers actually perceive it as an improvement?
0: Uh,
1: So how do we know a change, whether it's a change for product design or some service delivery capability? How do we know whether that's actually valuable? And... A lot of the work we've been doing with Kanban is focused on evolutionary change and applying evolutionary theory into organizational change. And evolutionary theory has an existing system for uh, determining whether some mutation, some adaptation is better or not so good in comparison with its predecessor, that the environment determines the fitness of the, you know, if it's a, a living organism, a biological organism, the, the, the genetics, the, the, the DNA, the design of the animal. Is it fitter for its environment or, or not? And in general, if something's fitter for its environment, it will uh, survive. It will thrive, and perhaps over time, it will squeeze out less fit alternatives and become the the, the dominant solution in a particular um, space and ecosystem. So, if we applied that theory to product design, or service design, or uh, you know, service delivery, operational management improvements. Um, the, the, the that prompted the next question of okay how how we make that measurable and the outcome of that train of thought became something called the fit for purpose framework and um, Alexis jegloff and I uh, sat down in the summer of two thousand and seventeen and we we wrote the book to explain that so it 's a book on strategy, marketing, product management, service design, market research. And it it ties in neatly with the Kanban thing because if Kanban's about driving service delivery improvement and evolutionary change, ultimately we're trying to satisfy customers better and we need a way of measuring that so that the two things kind of neatly come together my girlfriend has just brought me a cup of tea which
0: is very <laughs> lovely thank you darling <laughs> okay and for those who are listening on the podcast you can see out of Davy's window behind him out into the the, the, the hills of, on, on overlooking the bay of biscay is that right yeah this is
1: um the the this area is known as rebe costa it's uh, the first county outside of bilbao to the, the eastern side and uh, the coastline is literally just two or 300 metres from here. And it's a pretty rugged coastline. There's some beautiful beaches with some big cliffs. Um, scenes from uh, Game of Thrones were actually filmed here. And the, the, the film crew were parked in the street outside the house. And just a few hundred metres from here, they, a couple of years ago, they were filming scenes for Game of Thrones. So it's, it's rugged countryside here, but we're only 25
0: kilometres from the city centre. And weather-wise, you were saying before we came on, a bit of an upgrade from the from the Scottish experience.
1: Well, yeah, you know, people here will tell you, oh, it's windy, it rains, and it's dull, and especially in the winter, and they've got no idea what Scotland is like <laughs> in comparison. Yes, it's windy, but it's not as windy. It's dull, but it's not as dull. And a good summer in Scotland, it gets to maybe 20 degrees. And here, a, a decent day in the summer will be 30 degrees. And 36 is not unheard of. The, um, the, the weather is considerably nicer. And they have wonderful wine here. They have wonderful food. The whole region is famous for its uh, uh, gastronomy. It's Michelin-styled restaurants and, and so on. Even just the local cafe, the food is just fabulous. So it, the um, I love Scotland. I grew up there. Uh, it's my identity, but I, I love Spain. Spain won me over with its food and wine, and it's wonderfully
0: warm, friendly, welcoming people. Hmm. So back to the to the... To the fit for purpose, and the, this this idea, of applying evolutionary thinking. So, we know that we create some adaptation, and then we measure uh, the extent to which it's succeeded in its ecosystem. Let's say, and and you've got you've got some quite clear things to say about measurement. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah, you know, people have um, even if it's just intuitive, they they have uh, selection criteria why they like something, why they buy one car instead of a different car, why, why they order a certain cup of coffee over a different one. And they have selection criteria. And we refer to those as fitness criteria, the criteria that determine whether the product or service is fit for a purpose. And the purpose that the customer comes to the business with determines the fitness criteria. So in the book, we use some uh, very accessible examples. We have this character called Nita. Now, Nita actually based on a, a real woman who lives and works in Toronto in Canada. And although Nita in the, Nita in the book is a composite character, so it's, it's based on one particular woman we know that works in a public sector organization. But there are, uh, it's an amalgam of two or three other people that we know, but there, Nita's character, based on real individuals. So Nita's this working mother. She's a project manager in the IT department of this uh, government department in Toronto. And uh, her team are trying to finish a project and get, get it released. And they're working overtime. She's buying pizza. And it gets towards the end of the week. They get their release back on schedule. She gets to go home. In the early evening, we leave the babysitter who's picked the kids up from school, but it's Friday night and the kids haven't been fed and they're hungry and, and she's exhausted from a week of hard work and long hours and she hasn't been shopping and she doesn't even know what's in the fridge. So she orders pizza for the kids. And in these two scenarios, she orders the pizza from different restaurants at different price points and different kinds of pizza selection. Because the purpose of feeding her hungry children on Friday night, when she's exhausted, and the purpose of feeding the the thirty geeks in the IT department who are trying to get the new website release finished, uh, those are different. And the fitness criteria for the thirty geeks who are working overtime is different from her uh, four children in the book who are sort of aged between sort of six and twelve years old. And we examine why she chose different vendors, why she chose different kinds of pizza based on those purposes. So the, the, the key to it is to understand why your customer comes to you. Why did the customer come and ask you for something? And if you understand the why, then ask yourself, if, if I was that customer, if I was in their shoes, I'm walking in their shoes, living there, their life managing their risks what things do i care about and from that you can derive a reasonably good um, simulation of what the customer might care about so it's about hitting the target with your product or service design um, with more predictability by trying to get inside not just the the customer's head, but inside their shoes, um, walk in their shoes, think about the risks they're managing. So with Nita, when she comes home on Friday night, she has this young kid who's hungry. The babysitter's been feeding them some snacks, but um, now she's offered them pizza. What does the kid care about? How soon is it being delivered? And does the kid care whether it's really hot and tasty on delivery or if it's a bit cold? No, not really. But the previous night when she ordered pizza for the development team working on this website, do they care if it's hot and tasty pizza? Are they going to complain if it's cold? Absolutely. So the criteria are different. So we're really trying to encourage people to have much greater empathy with the customers And the fit-for-purpose framework is a mechanism for uh, framing that empathy, getting people to think about who is the customer, what do they care about, um, helping them walk in the customer's shoes, understand the risks the customer's managing, and in Nita's case, it's the six-year-old who's going to throw a temper tantrum. And she wants to avoid that. So she goes with the local vendor who makes very basic pizza, but they're fast at delivery. She doesn't look for gourmet flavors. Kids don't care about that. So the, uh, the fit-for-purpose framework about empathy and understanding better <laughs> And then we break that into some commonly recurring fitness criteria. And I think this is the measurement stuff you were talking about. Generally, people care about time. So how soon or how predictable or how timely? There are, uh, if you're ordering pizza on a Friday night, for you're hungry kids, you just want fast. 15 minutes is better than 20. 20 is better than 25. But if you were, for example, ordering a cake for a wedding, you want the cake delivered in pristine condition just before the, the wedding reception. You don't want the cake a week early, a couple of days early. You want it just in time and in beautiful condition, and certainly not late. So in some risk situations, timeliness is important. In other ones, it's just how long is it going to take And in some situations it's predictability, like you told me 20 minutes, well 15 to 25 would be all right, but somewhere between 10 and 45 isn't good enough. So uh, we help people break that down. So there's time, there's quality, and we we help people to understand the quite difficult concepts of what's the difference between functional quality and non-functional quality. Um, for everyone watching I'm sitting here in, in my new house here in Spain which I moved into just a few weeks ago and just the day after we moved in we discovered that um, the the toilet seat in the main level of the house uh, the public guest uh, uh, toilet facilities the toilet seat was basically loose it was all broken so we had to go uh, buy a new toilet seat so we went over to the local um, uh, do-it-yourself store called Leroy Merlin, and we purchased a toilet seat, and it has a feature, which is silent close. So silent close is a functional requirement, and then how well it performs the silent closing, and that's a combination of how fast, because you don't want it to be really, 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 really slow, but if it's fast, does it make a noise? Fast and it goes bang, it's not really silent. So silent closing is the functional requirement and the, how well it performs that is the non-functional requirement. And the book helps people understand those and be able to specify them, I think, in a very intuitive kind of way. And I, you know, I'm in my 50s now, I've been doing this a long time. And frankly, specifying requirements is something people aren't very good at. It's hard, so <clears throat> the, the book really tries to help with that. So there's timely the the the, the time, the temporal aspects, timeliness, predictability, and uh, and then there's quality, functional, non-functional, and then there's uh, safety or regulatory concerns. If you're ordering pizza, you'd like to think the restaurant meets the health and safety standards. Um, do you care if the delivery boy broke a few traffic rules while he delivered your pizza? Ethically, you probably should, but yeah, we really don't. Um, so uh, safety and regulatory requirements, they are commonly recurring. And then there's um, price. And, and price is more to do with affordability than sometimes to do with the signaling of how someone uh, ranks in, the, in a, some sort of social group or the social status. But for some people, they, they, you know, they're not wealthy. And uh, there's a certain affordability level. Like if you're making uh, you know, flat panel TVs at the beginning, only rich people could afford them. And eventually the price has to come down to a level where it's accessible to the general public and people on lower incomes. Um, so there's that and then the the final one which actually the book doesn't cover but we'll talk about in the the second book the sequel um, is optionality or adaptability so if you're not quite sure how you're going to use something or you might have multiple purposes you want to be able to reconfigure the product so if you've got multiple purposes in mind and it's very common with Europeans if you if you go to buy a car You might be a one-car family that's pretty typical. And if you've got kids, then you can start imagining, well, there's the times we're going to soccer or football, and there's the times that we're going to school, and then there's vacation trips, and, uh, and there's shopping, and so on. You come up with all these different purposes, and you end up buying some relatively utility sort of vehicle that can be reconfigured in different ways or used for different reasons. But if you have some very specific purpose in mind, you just go out and buy a two-seater sports car with no roof. So uh, optionality or adaptability, that's the the, the fifth of these commonly recurring fitness criteria. And that provides a template now for someone who's writing the requirements to say, have I covered all these basics? A simple way of looking to see if they've, Defined a sufficient number of requirements uh, that the product
0: might actually appeal to someone a real human being, right? And you would do that for a particular segment, is that right?
1: Exactly for a you know purpose or some group of purposes that we're trying to move people away from segmentation to segmentation by purpose. It's actually uh, not a new idea. There's a, a popular concept in um, software design, you know, user interface design called personas, originates from um, uh, Alan Cooper and Kim Goodwin and a concept called goal-directed design. And their message was you need to understand the, the user, the customer, the client, the, their goal. Why did they come to you? What is it they're trying to achieve with your product? And then um, design it for that. And you should segment the market according to the customer's goal. So the the goal, the purpose, the why, they're basically the same thing. So um, the work that um, Goodwin and Cooper did on goal-directed design personas dates from the late 1990s. And we're really coming at it the same thing, but from a slightly different angle from the the idea, the, the idea of you you evolve your product designs, you evolve your service delivery performance. Um, so with a bit of evolutionary theory and from uh, an outside-in um, marketing perspective of who are your customers and how might you understand them better and understand them by the purpose, by the why they came to you. And it's, it's not easy. You know, when I talk with clients, I say, why do your customers come to you? Oh, I don't know. we not sure. What do they buy? Well, we know what they buy, but why do they buy it? They're not they're not so sure. And that's causes them to stop and think a little bit and, and say, okay, we're not sure why they come. How would we find that out? And of course, the book has a, an answer for that. The the fit-for-purpose card survey mechanism, which basically explicitly asks the question, uh, what was your purpose or, or reason for doing business with us, for buying our products, for consuming our service, for taking our training class? And a, a tremendous amount of insight
0: comes uh, from the answer to that first question in the survey. Right, which is very different from... Because classically, we might ask people, "What did you get out of it? Or, what did you like? What did you not like? What could we improve?" Mm-hmm. It's quite rare to say, "Why did you? Why did you buy us in the first place?" It, it,
1: it surprisingly, even though in the research for the book, and you'll see this, in, and it's um uh, chapter six when we uh, talk about um the uh we know why you fly, which it's a. It was an American Airlines um, marketing slogan for about uh, six, maybe eight years. And they ran entire ad campaigns from approximately 2006 to 2014 around this concept of we know why you fly. Um, But it it was skin deep because the, the features they were offering in their service, the the flights, the uh, classes of service on the flights, and so on—they weren't congruent with the concept that they knew why we fly. So it was um, it, it was uh, cute marketing, but they didn't follow it through with the um, the implementation behind that. <clears throat> so in the book, we picked that apart a little bit. We uh, I remembered the campaign, but we did some research on it. And it turns out that it was a campaign that was widely criticised in, um, in marketing and advertising circles because they, they felt it wasn't authentic.
0: Were they saying that the reason people flew was the, the, the delicious meals? Or...
1: Yeah, the, one of the TV adverts had uh, a guy who was flying home to see his grandmother for Thanksgiving because she made um, a delicious pie and he loved that pie from his childhood and he had to fly to have the pie. And that's a, that's a very narrow segment right there. <laughs> the grandma's pie uh, segment. And it's not particularly useful or actionable, like in the sense that someone's flying to, um, to grandma's for Thanksgiving to have the pie. The pie's irrelevant. If someone's flying at Thanksgiving, that tells you a bit about it. You know, it's recreational travel, it's time bound, you know, a specific date they have to be there. They're probably paying for it with their own money. And you know, you, so you can extrapolate it that might represent um fit for purpose. But they they you know they, they didn't follow through on that. So the, the book examines some of that history and it was uh, when we got into it and started writing the book, it was really quite fun researching. We found that we'd wake up in the morning and overnight there'd be stories just on BBC or CNN or something. And it was an obvious, um, uh, mismatch on fit for purpose. And we built some of those stories straight into, um, into the book, the failure of Air Berlin, for example, um, the uh, mobile phone. The, uh, I've forgotten the brand name. the The high end Nokia mobile phones that cost like ten thousand pounds each. The company failed um, while we were writing the book. And we wrote a section about about that failure. Uh, Vertu. Vertu is the, the name of the brand. And the, um, we're trying to demystify and democratize a lot of things which um, have traditionally been difficult. And uh, I think there's a lot of that happening with Kanban as well, that Kanban's about democratizing a lot of decision making. You know, someone can walk up to the board, pull their own ticket. Well, what's needed in a company before someone has the authority to pull their own ticket? You actually need to trust that they're capable of making a good
0: decision. Right, so when, so, so I, I can understand this this segmentation, get, get, your your understanding your customers through a slightly different set of questions, and I I can I can grasp that. I don't see why is that inherently democratizing.
1: Um, I think the framework uh, the framework democratizes writing good quality requirements, or you could think of it as it it, it raises the the, the level. Right, the the tide rises for everyone. Following the, the the framework gives a relatively mediocre product manager the opportunity of of performing reasonably well. Uh, I, I think is the, the the message there that we've managed to capture the the, the eighty to ninety percent of what you might care about and um, package it up in a nice infographic at least it teaches people the right questions to be asking and to be able to validate for themselves. Have we answered these questions? Do we have a, do we have an understanding of the, the, what the customer cares about regarding time, the specifically when, or the uh, predictability or the how long, the, the The functional features they care about, functional quality, and The the non-functional quality, it was really interesting writing the book because the manuscript reviewers were marketing professionals. A friend of mine used to be my boss's boss long ago. He was the chief marketing officer at Sprint, which is a phone company in the United States. And while he was reading the manuscript, it was very evident that he'd never thought about the difference between functional quality and non-functional quality. And it was something inherently intuitive to him, but not something that he was capable of articulating. And we had to rewrite that section of the book maybe four or five times in order to make it clear enough until eventually one day we got a reply saying, okay, I get it now. Right. Uh, so uh, that's what I mean by democratizing. We're, we're enabling, rather than having a few high priests of product specification, we're enabling a lot of people to be very effective at it.
0: Right. And presumably, though, they, they weren't using as a marketing slogan, making mediocre, mediocre, <laughs> mediocre products managers reasonably well, well absolutely
1: right you know you you, you can um, you can democratize something you can improve the accessibility of it but you certainly don't market it as um a, you know they um, making making crap performance better uh, because i think any healthy uh, you know a, any psychologically healthy person gets out of bed in the morning believing that they're quite good at what they do Mm. Uh, Fundamentally, we have to believe that we're good at being who we are. So if you're a product manager for a living and someone asks you, hey, do you think you're a good product manager? Then a a relatively healthy psychological response says, yeah, you know, I I might not be the best. but I, I think I'm quite good. Definitely above average. And any insurance company will tell you that the average driver believes they're an above average driver. Right, right, right. Where on the other hand, a response like, no, I'm crap. You know, I'm terrible at what I do. That's a depressed person. Because if someone really believed that and they weren't depressed, they would quit that job, that profession, and they would go find something else to do with a life that um, they were good at, that made them feel good. So someone who sticks with what they do and believes they're terrible at it is... Um, someone with some psychological challenges. So in general, people believe that, that they're quite good. And uh, studies on this, apparently the happiest people in the world are the blissfully ignorant, the ones who go through life believing that they're actually pretty good at what they do for a living, for example, even if they're terrible at it. And, you know, personally, I don't care what they think of themselves, but if we can improve someone's skill level at something, product specification, service design, product management, the decision-making of what should we build now, what can wait until later, what should we not build at all, um, if we can improve that, then ultimately that serves the consumers, the public, every you know the the the, the human race benefits from the fact that people learn to uh, you know they develop some better skills. Right, and uh, we stumbled on this just by answering, as I said, these two questions: know how do you know if an improvement is really an improvement, and uh, how how do you, if your customers consuming your product or your service, how do they perceive it?
0: Right. And what have, have you had any aha, aha moments yourself in terms of applying these techniques to your business, or have your clients had any revelations from this that might be interesting to share?
1: Um, it, yeah, you know, it's always tricky sharing client revelations, but, um, without doubt, the ideas in the book are regularly used in my business and the, the, the network, Alexei business and our other partners. And a lot of it comes from, um, uh, just uh, very recently that's shared internally on our network. The, the Kanban guys in the province of Ontario have got together and, and formed kind of an alliance and they have a, a Toronto Kanban meetup every month. And they believed that that was there for the purpose of helping people who were leading agile transitions and doing Kanban coaching to sort of share and learn with each other. But by surveying the attendees, they learned that most of them were there because they believed there was a small core of experts, Martin Aziz, uh, Fernando Quenza, Alexei Zegloff, and that's not all of them. So I'm, I'm doing a disservice to the other three or four by not mentioning them. And the, the rest were all coming to basically consume their expertise. And that was a surprise, that they, they had formed a group for a different purpose, but the people who are consuming the group, they were there uh, for a reason that they hadn't anticipated. And that 's taught them that they have to change the style of the meetings and the type of content they 're delivering and how they 're doing it and the The other um epiphanies that happen are discovering customers that you prefer that you might prefer you don 't you you don't want at all people who are coming for the wrong reason and then they don 't quite get what they 're looking for, and then they get upset about it. So the, those are the sort of customers that leave you bad reviews or create bad, bad word of mouth uh, referral. And it's because they, they, they walked in, in our case, training. They walked into the training class for the wrong reason. there, And usually the issue is one that we're not communicating clearly uh, who should be coming and why they should be coming. Um, occasionally, that still fails. But we, we do have documented examples. There was, uh, two, two women came to one of our conferences in Asia a couple of years ago, and they'd flown the whole way uh, from the United Kingdom. And they were there for the wrong reason. And uh, therefore, they didn't get what they were looking for, and they were unhappy in the end. And as a misdirection when they filled out you know, the, 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 the forms, survey forms at the end, they claimed that we hadn't adequately marketed uh, what the conference was about and who should come. So I pulled up the website and the very first sentence on the, on the first page actually stated very clearly. So... The, either they hadn't read that first sentence or it was really just a misdirection. So it's not a foolproof method by any means, but a lot of the epiphany comes from understanding who's walked into your business for the wrong reason. And then that creates a challenge because I imagine you've got a lot of people coming for the wrong reason and the money they're paying you is paying the bills, it's paying the rent on the office, it's paying the salaries for the employees You're kind of addicted. So now you've got people there for the wrong reason. Those people are a bit unhappy and you're addicted to the money. What do you do about it? So, of course the perfect answer is that you switch off that segment and you, you figure out how to switch on other segments and hopefully the financial pain isn't too great while you make that transition. Or the alternative is that you pivot to serve the people who are coming. Hmm. So if we use the Lean Kanban France conference, which ran for six years, the final year, there were maybe 250, 300 people in Paris, very successful. Organizers made a lot of money. But we held the book launch for Fit for Purpose and like six people came, which was a bit of a surprise. And when I did the closing keynote, there were only 80, 85 people left in the room and half of them were speakers or organizers. So it was very clear that the people weren't at the Kanban conference for Kanban content. And the organizers figured out that these were largely IT people and they had more of an interest in in the merger of uh, development and operations, the DevOps movement. So they pivoted their conference into FlowCon France, and they, they're specifically targeting that DevOps audience, with DevOps content. Uh, so in other words, another, rather than switching off customers who've walked into the room for the wrong reason, they've changed the event to serve the customers who are actually coming. And, and both of those are viable um, outcomes. Particularly if you're running a business where you care about customer service, but you don't really care about what you're serving. You know, it's easy to pivot to something else uh, if customer service is a value. But yeah, you know, we don't mind whatever will make you happy. We'll sell it to you. For a business like mine, we're the Kanban business. It's why we exist. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's what we believe in. So if people are walking into Kanban conferences or Kanban training classes for the wrong reason, we need to figure out how to switch them off and how to find the right people. We need to improve our own communication get better at that. Those are the main insights that, that we get
0: from the analysis. Right. And I can really see that, that that's an important point, isn't it? Because it, it how I how I orient my business, whether it's find a customer purpose, find a purpose that a group of customers are dedicated to and then try and serve them or choose a purpose in the world and then find a way to market and find those customers. That's quite an important choice, isn't it? And and knowing which you're in, And if you want to pivot and when to pivot, those are all important questions. But if you're not asking why are people turning up, then you're, you're not in that inquiry.
1: Yeah, so um, in the, the, the broader body of knowledge we call enterprise services planning, there's content which will probably find its way into the third book of the trilogy that we've planned for Fit for Purpose, uh, which is focused on identity. Um, so we run these workshops with executives, and we ask them, as a company, who are you? What do you stand for? Why do you exist? And help them to explore and define their identity, because if they can't define that, they can't answer the question you've just highlighted. You know. So we have business partners who offer our training. And if you look at their website, they have a catalog of many different trainings they offer, and they're affiliated with many different organizations that created the intellectual property. And those businesses, their identity might be Washington, D.C.-based IT training company. And they know that they've got a geographic market, and then they look for basically products to retail, like Kanban training. And then there are other businesses where they, the, the, their identity is that they do Kanban, that they just they're bought into the message, the message that's in the, the Kanban book, they believe in it, they believe it's helping a lot of people, and they build their business around that. And the, those are two very important different, different identity choices. So... Um, One service, one product we offer is helping businesses explore their identity and then look at based on who they really are, is the strategy congruent with that? Because uh, if you think about a purely personal psychological level, if you know who you are as a human being... And your actions, everything you do, whether it's strategic in your life, like your career, your profession, your education, or operationally, the job that you do. And many, many tactical or housekeeping activities you might do, tactical things like you know, whether you opportunistically go watch the football match on the weekend with your friends or something. All of these things, if they're aligned with who you are as a person, you're a happy person. Where if you're doing things that are incongruent with who you are, then you're a deeply unhappy person and you might have some veneer over it. But internally, there's an angst. And companies suffer the same problem that if their actions are not congruent with inherently who they are, then they're dysfunctional. And you, you see that manifest in various ways, politics and, and disagreements and an inability to provide good service or whatever it might be. So helping businesses explore their identity, um, understand who they are and why they exist. There, there's a quote that I love from Richard Branson, which says that uh, people believe companies exist to make profits. They have it backwards. Companies make profits in order to exist, which is it's core. Like if two or three people sit down and say, hey, let's start a band together. Let's start a company together. There's a reason for that. They, they have some concept in mind, what they're trying to do. And as the business scales, sometimes that gets forgotten. So there's a case study on our website from an Austrian company called Tupelo. And Tupelo developed a a mobile app that was uh, comparable to Yelp or Foursquare. They were basically the European equivalent of Yelp. But they originally started as a service to help vegans find vegan food in Vienna. And... The mechanism of being able to have, um, uh, you know, reviews and information about vegan restaurants that then expanded into why not any restaurant for any particular dietary requirements and then more generally any business. And as the company grew and got more successful and they got some in this company, for example. And at a larger scale, they found that they were doing things that weren't congruent with who they were and their identity, and it made them unhappy. And in the case study, the story that we've written, there's a pivotal point where they sit down and say, why are we just doing all the features the investors want? Why did we start this company in the first place? What are we here for? And they completely reset and they change their portfolio allocation and their strategic plan so that they, they defend, they allocate capacity specifically for uh, the development of who they are as a business. The features they want, the products they want to bring to market that are congruent with their identity. And it, it restores the happiness in the business. So a, a very important um, idea for us and the idea that that social entities like companies they behave in many ways just like individuals
0: yeah and that inquiry into who i am is such an important one for us as individuals and for us as companies. and
1: it's difficult you know we we i think we all struggle with it all of our lives and and we go through periods where it changes you know for me there was a there was an instant in my life where my identity changed because my first daughter was born. You know, and the nurse handed her to me, you know, it'd wash off some of the blood and so on. And here are ah, your daughter. And I'm like, whoa, I'm a father?" You know, it's an instant identity change. And I I have seen her birth certificate, and on that um, certificate, it says my profession is software engineer. Well, at the time when she was born, I hadn't done any programming for three years. And two years later, two and a half years later, my second daughter is born. And on her birth certificate, it says my profession is um, manager. So in the the time between those two uh, births of my kids, I had reconciled myself with, I'm not a software engineer anymore. I'm a manager of software engineers. And that wasn't an instant transition where something like you become a father, yeah, that's an instant transition, right? And you either have to uh, immediately reconcile with that and take the responsibility or in you know, some very sad cases, the fathers run away. Right? They, 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 they can't cope with the identity. It happens perhaps more with, um, with younger um, parents, fathers who, who perhaps become fathers uh, too young, They're not ready for it and it scares them off. So we go through periods of understanding our identity quite well and then something happens in our life and it might take a few years before the individual reconciles that, you know, I'm not that person I used to be. Things have changed and that their behavior becomes congruent again and then, you know, inherently they become a lot happier once they figure that out.
0: Right, but they, but they need to create space for that, and that's what I often find with with clients that I work with. The, the challenge is quite often creating the space to have that inquiry. No matter how well,
1: into- they, if you're thinking in a corporate sense, space is free cash. We make more money than we spend, and if you run a small business like mine, you completely understand that. You know, there are months where. It's a 10th of the month and we're like oh shit how do we make payroll by the end of this month how many of these prospect sales can we close and will we collect the money and will everyone get paid and if you're under that kind of pressure you don't have space so space for a corporation is things like free cash or a nice steady cash cow business which uh generates enough money that you can experiment with a few new things um, and it takes time for smaller businesses think mean, it will be five ten years before you make that breakthrough and now you've got some space to sit back and think okay who are we really
0: and do we want to be somebody else mm. so yeah so there's a yeah <laughs> So there's a sort of requisite level of health almost before you could, and that's true of an individual, I suppose, as well as a corporation. You need to be at a requisite level of health before you can even engage in those right. higher levels. Uh, a
1: nice type of, I remember one of the types is a health indicator. And uh, yeah, you go to the doctor and they weigh you. you, they take your blood pressure, You know, maybe they test your blood and tell you your cholesterol level and so on. And these are all just basic health indicators, and if they're not at a healthy level, you have to deal with that first before you can start worrying about you know, much more. Um, you know, if you've got hypertension and you're at the dentist, and the dentist says, "Oh, you know, you, you maybe you need a filling. It's not urgent, but you know, th- this should get fixed." Well, actually, you're more worried about the hypertension. Deal with that first. You know worry about your minor dental health problems later on and with companies it's the it's the same thing that it's very easy for guys like me to write books get on stages give talks and, and you could preface all of it with if only there was an ideal world here's what you should do and of course it's never it's never that simple um uh, in the Kanban coaching classes. I, I teach Kanban coaches. That there's no if only in Kanban. We're, we're trying to get incredibly pragmatic with the situation that you see before you. And as soon as you find yourself or your client, you hear your client saying something like, if only our people were better at writing requirements, we could hit the deadlines. Well, you've just, Articulated the problem and you know the solution already. And it's not wishful thinking, it's not the if only. So either you somehow educate your people to write better requirements because poor requirements were leading to a lot of rework, and that was leading to missed deadlines. Or, you know, so if you believe you can fix that problem, go ahead, fix it. But if you believe that the you won't ever get there, well, why are you setting such hard deadlines? Right. Solve the problem a different way, reframe the situation, and uh, we use a lot of philosophy in the the, the training. Uh, and uh, a big influence on on us was uh, a, a, a well-known guy called Bruce Lee. Um a very famous 20th century philosopher that uh, it turns out Bruce Lee uh, studied philosophy at the University of Washington in Seattle. And for those uh, watching, we didn't mention that um, I've lived in Seattle for 19 years. Our, our head office is there. Bruce Lee is buried in Seattle. So if you're visiting Seattle, a very, it's not a very touristy thing to, to do, but go visit Bruce Lee's grave. Um, uh, he, he, Bruce Lee talks a lot about be like water and, and go around a rock. Water goes around a rock. So in a situation like we miss our deadlines because we do a lot of rework because we're bad at writing requirements, the rock is we're bad at writing requirements. Hmm. And either you can hit that rock head on and you can somehow improve the skill level of, people are writing requirements and we'd love it if they read the fit for purpose book and that made them a lot better at it but that's the hard way to solve the problem that if only we were good at writing requirements we could hit our deadlines well trying to fix the requirement writing that's tough involves uh, improving people's skill level well what if we took the go around the rock solution and that would be Let's accept the fact we're not good at writing requirements and let's reframe the situation so that we have the space, the slack, to be able to adjust later. And therefore, we don't make these very rigid commitments that we used to make. Find a way of reframing the situation, working with your customers differently. Or if you're applying some fit-for-purpose thinking, find people whose why doesn't require such a hard, rigid deadline, that their fitness criteria is softer. And then you can serve those people adequately and they'll be happy, even though you're not the world's best at writing requirements. So a core skill for Kanban coaches is to be able to internalize this goal and we avoid fixing the thing that's obviously broken if it's a tough nut to crack, if it's a hard thing to fix. Let's just go around it, find a different way of solving the
0: problem. Right. And that links back to this: these evolutionary ideas that, well, I suppose when I think of evolution, it's a gentle, a gentle, progr- a gentle Process of of gradual adaptation. It's not um, big, um, dramatic changes, right? Um, Well, uh, in uh, evolutionary
1: theory, they have this concept called punctuated equilibrium, and that sort of gentle evolution is in equilibrium periods. Then you get these punctuation points, an asteroid hits the planet, or a volcano explodes, or something. And uh, those, those are the, 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 the two ideas that you're talking about there. And there's a third one that's beginning to enter the literature, and it's been um, promoted by recent observation of hybrid species. The, the, the best documented one is um, a species of dog called the koi wolf, which is a cross between a coyote and a wolf in North America. And it's a relatively new species, 100, 120 years only, and this species is evolving before our eyes, basically, and it was a, a crossbreed between uh, coyotes and, and wolves, hence the name the coy wolf, not very original name. So there's this concept that you you can take two things and sort of merge them together and get this hybrid so you get periods of equilibrium where you get this gentle evolution, you get punctuation points that um, an asteroid hit your planet and when you come out the other side of that, all bets are off and the fitness criteria are totally different. Um, In corporate terms, an asteroid hit your planet is a merger, an acquisition, a new chief executive, a bankruptcy, anything like that, um, Brexit you know, the um the major political changes. These are all you know major punctuation points. And then um, you know, weird hybrid things. I think companies are are actually quite um they're they're in a position to do that quite often, take two different products or concepts and merge them together, do something differently. Um so three three different ways of seeing evolution and it, actually the the equilibrium periods the gen periods of gentle evolution they're the difficult ones because in a, an equilibrium um a variant an adaptation it's seen as a mutant, and the existing ecosystem attacks it socially. So in in evolutionary biology, imagine you have a flock of birds and an egg hatches and there's a little mutant bird in there, so it's an albino, something like that. The other birds in the flock will attack and kill it. So in, in periods of equilibrium, the mutants, the, the Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, the happy feet, the best outcome for a mutant like that is that they get expelled, they get uh, ostracized. And that's what happens in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it's what happens in Happy Feet. And of course, these are great hero stories because the, the ostracized mutant comes back as the hero, but in real life, it really doesn't happen. The ostracized mutant gets picked off by a predator and killed and eliminated from the gene pool. So when we're teaching change management we have to teach the change agent the coach to be able to recognize punctuation points versus periods of equilibrium and recognize that making the changes in a period of equilibrium is much harder and you need to protect the the adaptation you need to give it some protection what what's um known as Galapagos Island theory: the you you need to be able to isolate the the mutant and give it a chance to survive and to thrive. To um, to separate out the it's the the concept that's documented in Clayton Christensen's book, the Innovator Solution, where you isolate the mutant so that it has a chance of survival and. Therefore, applying evolutionary theory is not that simple. You need to be able to break things into these three categories: of it's a punctuation point, it's a deliberate design hybrid, which we've we've deliberately created a mutant, and now we're going to protect it. And then there's just like evolution that you've changed something, you've modified your Kanban board, adding an extra column to it, changed a width limit, something like that. And that needs some protection if it's going to uh, thrive and survive or even something as simple as introducing Kanban in the first place over your existing project management or service delivery management approach. You've just introduced a mutation and it needs a little protection for a while. It needs some isolation. Uh, so it, it, the, I, a I, very, And to continue that analogy, it's
0: almost as if... Enough protection until it becomes strong enough that it can defend itself. I mean, I've been in the, position, in the position of a change agent where it's almost like I've needed enough space to have enough good news stories and enough evidence that something's working before it gets exposed to the rest of the organization. It's like if it gets exposed too quickly without enough defense. Sure, people will defenses. not
1: take it seriously. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's one. And then there's the other... Um, in the Kanban training, and you'll see some Kanban guys play off this, we, we use the metaphor of the grey and the red squirrel. So uh, here in Europe, you, some people um, know this story, it's fairly well documented now, somewhere in the southwest of London, so Wimbledon area, or somewhere in Sussex, a rich person decided that uh, in the mid-19th century, it'd be really nice to have grey squirrels a- in their uh, stately home alongside the red squirrels, which were already native, because red squirrels are native to uh, the British Isles, to mainland Europe. And the grey squirrel was actually imported from eastern, northeastern United States or Canada. And it's known as the eastern grey which is a bit of a misdirection because it makes us think it comes from like the Ural Mountains or Siberia or something, but it doesn't. It's an American. And the gray squirrel is just a little bit bigger and tougher and better at competing for the nuts than the red squirrel. But the main thing is the gray squirrel is immune to a disease that kills red squirrels. So it carries the disease, but it doesn't, doesn't kill the grays. And the consequence is that over the intervening, what is that now, 150, 170 years, uh, throughout most of Europe, and certainly across all the British Isles, United Kingdom and Ireland, um, the grey squirrels have wiped out the red squirrels with the exception of um, the Grampian Mountains in Scotland, um, the Isle of Anglesey, uh, no, Isle of Wight, some of the Isle of Anglesey, and the extreme west of Ireland, the mountains in the west of Ireland. The red squirrels still exist here in Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula. So far, the Pyrenees Mountains have um, stopped the gray squirrels so far. So you can imagine in a company where you introduce a change, you give it some protection, some new ideas, and that, that's the gray squirrel. And the existing way of doing things, existing project management, portfolio management, whatever it is, that's the red squirrel. Well, if the gray squirrel gets a bit of protection it survives and begins to thrive and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, more popular because it's perceived as a better, easier solution to the old way of doing it. Gradually, the the, the gray squirrel displaces the red squirrel uh, in the population. So it's a, it's a technique that we, we teach the, together with the, the metaphor, the philosophy of water goes around a rock. So you find a go-around-a-rock solution. So the, the rock might be our project management doesn't forecast projects very accurately, and we're unhappy because now the schedule was missed and it was because the forecast was bad. So we, we could say, okay, um, let's introduce a different forecasting method, or we could take a different approach and say, let's segment the market by timeliness demands and offer different classes of service, typical solution in Kanban. So using class of services, I go around a rock solution. And if the class of service method based on cost of delay, how urgent is the thing that you need and what's the impact over time? And therefore, if it's urgent and it's high impact, we give it a high class of service like expedite or fixed delivery date. But if it's not urgent or it has a low impact, we give it some other class of service in the Kanban book, the standard class or the the intangible cost of delay class of service. And... It turns out that it 's very easy for people to answer the questions about at least at a qualitative level the impact and the timeliness and select a class of service and that 's much easier than trying to do some very accurate uh, planning very accurate um, estimation and forecasting so because the the go-around-the-rock solution, the gray squirrel we've introduced in our environment, it's easier to use, it's faster to use, it uses much less energy, and it often produces a better outcome, it thrives. And gradually, the old way of doing it just shrivels and dies. And the change agent never, ever had to come along and say, stop doing that that all we do is we introduce the new idea into the environment and we do it as an and, not an or. So, yes, continue to plan your projects the way you've been planning and we suggest you adopt this class of service approach. And it's a little bit extra overhead, but not very much. Well, if they adopt it, gradually people realize this is... Cheaper, faster, easier, better, and the the old way of doing it dies out. It's just natural displacement. The grey squirrels naturally displace the red squirrels, and nobody ever resisted because you didn't ever tell someone not to do something, something they were proud of, some skill that they that was core to their identity or. Um, something they felt they got paid for,
0: and didn't it's a, try and stop, stop the river.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So it's a very powerful uh, technique. So I, I know that we're sort of mixing, even creating a hybrid out of metaphors. There, we we go around the rock with our grey squirrel. Um, it, it actually turns out to be a, you know it's a remarkably powerful technique. It's relatively easy to teach people. And um, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Repeatable. So people coming through the Kanban coaching class, they find they're leaving with a lot of new insights, things they can start doing differently next week when they get back to their office or their client. And they're not particularly difficult things to adopt. They're just a little bit of change in
0: mindset right and 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 very different to the to a lot of i suppose organizational change efforts are often predicated on a a vision for a new structure or something big and bold and very different and then the, it's the sort of the job of the leader to use their skill and their might to have this change implemented it's
1: yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> insight that the identity of the leader is important. In Jim Collins' book, Good, Good to Great, he talked about um, humble leaders. And there are definitely leaders who are not humble. So they they want the grand gesture, the, uh, like Carly Fiorino, when she became the chief executive of Hewlett-Packard. And she needed some grand gesture. And she was the great conquering chief executive. So she annexed a small neighboring country called Compaq and created the world's biggest PC manufacturer and declared victory. Now, quietly in the background, while Carly was doing all of that, two middle managers in the printer firmware division based out of Boise, Idaho, were quietly implementing Kanban and some other lean ideas. And they increased the productivity of the, Firmware development, so the software that goes in, they increased the times, they dropped the lead time on a new generation of firmware from 21 months to three and a half months and completely revolutionized Hewlett-Packard's capability of introducing new laser printers into the market. Which one of those two changes annexing Compaq or reducing the lead time on a new generation of laser printers from 21 months to three and a half months is more likely to have had a bigger impact on Hewlett-Packard's performance in the last decade. Now this was 2005 and six when they, when the, this was done. It's a well-documented case study. And the, the video um, of one of the managers presenting it is from a 2009 conference. So it's going back a bit. Um, it's much more likely that making the, the printer division more competitive had a bigger impact on the long-term performance of HP. And yet these were just two middle managers doing their jobs. And they didn't even get much help. You know, They'd been at a couple of conferences where Don Reinertson and I were both speakers. And they were flying home to Boise one night after a conference in Chicago, and they're like, you know, that stuff we saw David present, Don present, we, we should do it. And a year later, they, they, the firmware was no longer the constraint on introducing new laser printers to the market. So Carly Fiorino would not have been able to declare a great victory from what happened in the printer firmware division, it wouldn't have been her. She wasn't the champion of it. It wasn't a big grand gesture. She couldn't be seen as the hero. And when you have a leader that needs to be like that, evolutionary change, the Kanban method, it's not appropriate. It, it will help the business, but it's something that's going to happen in the background, sort of despite everything else that's going on. And uh, the the big sort of punctuation point, let's acquire, on the the hero leader, not the humble leader, the hero leader is the one that needs punctuation points. They don't do well in periods of equilibrium. Hero leaders create their own punctuation points. They want these little chaotic moments where they come out the other side as the great vector And actually, it's a dice roll. So uh, to use a political um, metaphor or analogy, David Cameron. David Cameron rolled the dice on Scottish independence, and he won. But he came damned close to being the first prime minister to lose united in kingdom. And then uh, sort of...
0: Just for for international listeners, it might be useful just to unpack that a bit.
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, what was it, 2016, uh, the people of Scotland got to vote on becoming independent from the United Kingdom. And the British government had to uh, authorise that to happen in the first place. So the Prime Minister at the time was David Cameron, and he... um, he authorized the the election because he thought there was no chance he could lose and he almost lost and Scotland would have become an independent country as a consequence. Well emboldened by that, I guess it was 2014, time goes by really quick, um, emboldened by his victory in the Scottish independence election, he thought, hey, Let's deal with a whole bunch of uh, troublemakers in the back benches of the Conservative Party and hold a referendum on whether the United Kingdom should leave the European Union. Um, and, of course, he lost He lost that dice roll. And he lost his job as the prime minister. as a consequence. And, um, these big, grand gestures, these punctuation points, they're... Um, just in the instant when it's happening, they're chaotic. Nobody quite knows the outcome. Even uh, last night with the, the vote on, the, uh, on Brexit, the, the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, nobody anticipated the government would be defeated by 230 votes because that's the biggest government defeat in, in UK parliamentary history. Not only is it never happened, Happened. So the um the, the hero leader takes a tremendous amount of risk. And when they come out the other side as a champion, then everyone thinks, wow, what a you know, what a great leader. But the the other side of that could be potentially horrible. You know, Britain's leaving the European Union or Scotland's leaving the United Kingdom or whatever it might be. And it might condemn that particular leader to, uh, to history as a, as a loser, yeah. a terrible loser. And it could have horrible effects on all sorts of people who work at a company, their customers and so on. Where you're a gentle, humble leader that, that leads through periods of equilibrium with lots of little evolutionary changes, nothing that's so dramatic that it can stick to them as their great victory but they're taking much less risk. And if you're an employee at a company, would you rather be working for the humble leader driving the evolutionary changes, or would you rather be working for the, the the hero leader making the big punctuation points and taking the big risks with the dice rolls? Um, I, I think a lot of the, the ordinary workforce with kids to put through school and, health care to pay for and mortgages or rents and the rest of the life to get on with. Um, They'd rather be working for the the, the much more humble leader that pursues
0: the evolutionary changes. Right. No, I get that. And and that's given me a big insight in terms of when I'm operating as a change agent, making more of an assessment of the disposition of the leader I'm working with and are they more likely to be drawn to... The slower burn, evolutionary change, or the grand gesture—I'm not sure. I always ask myself that explicitly, but I can see it. But did, then, the did you part- ever—you ever
1: watch the show *Boston Legal* back in the day, 10, no. 15 years ago? William Shatner was the, was the the main lawyer. William Shatner, of course, best known as Captain Kirk, and his character in the *Boston Legal* had never never lost a court case, and he was already an old man; he was sort of retirement age senior partner in the law firm and when people asked him how come you've never lost a case he said because I don't argue I don't argue the case I play the judge so he examines who's the judge in the case and what are the hot buttons for that judge and then he amplifies the message to play to the judge's character and uh, therefore, it's, it's a huge insight when you're working on a change initiative, the sponsor, um, the people who have the purse strings, you need to understand who they are and their identity and their psyche and uh, what's important to them, what they value. Because if you're acting in what you believe is the best interests of the business and the people there and the customers, but it's against the character of the leader, you'll never get the support. And I'm a great believer in appropriateness, right? Fit for purpose. And there are times where the Kanban method just wouldn't be fit for purpose. And part of uh, what I feel I need to do with uh, consultants who come to my coaching class is teach them when to walk away, when to realize, you know, that this isn't our client. They're not our customer. They're not a good fit for the Kanban approach. And either if you're a pure play Kanban consultant, walk away. Or if you're a, a consultant with a, with a bigger tool chest, then open up your kit bag and select some other method from in there and deliver that to the client because that's going to serve their needs better, at least in the short to medium term.
0: Right. And then the, the, the thing that when I, I hear all that and I get the logic of it, but there's still part of me that's kind of feels like somehow they if they want to create this big grand gesture, well, it's it's coming from their ego or some level of dysfunction in who they are. And it's actually some neurotic drive that's pushing them in that direction. And it may quite, be- Quite likely. Quite, quite likely, but it's like, and kind of, and so what, right? I mean, you're not going to do anything about that, firstly. And secondly, who knows? Maybe maybe even some largely neurotically driven grand gesture change will still have an impact.
1: Well, sure. And- So first of all, that personality trait, it's a rock in the environment. So learn to recognize the rocks, the things that are incredibly difficult to move out of your way, impossible perhaps. And if it's a rock in the environment, it's it's a given, it's just a fact. Now you need to work around it. So recognizing, for example, the sponsor's a narcissist, then the, the choices are walk away or work around the narcissism. But don't try and uh, don't try and fix it. All right. Um, the, uh, we watched quite a lot of movies in the, the, the training. And one of my favorites is called The Damned United. Are you familiar with that? The Damned United. So it's no. a story of Brian Clough uh, and his 44 days as the manager of Leeds United in 1974. Of course, he was famously fired after I think seven seven games of the team. and I think they lost six and drew one, something like that. In that time, and this fired. Is
0: the best soccer team in England, yeah.
1: Yes, and at the time, Leeds United were um, the most successful soccer team in England and in the top three or four in the in the world as a as a club side. And all the players on the team, were almost all of them, were World Cup um, international players. And Brian Clough became the manager, and previously he'd been the manager at an unfashionable club called Derby County. And he had won the English First Division, what would now be the, the Premier League, with that team. And he was considered the best young football manager in the country, and Leeds United had hired him. And the thing is that although Leeds had lost the first division to Derby County the previous year, they were winning almost everything else every other year and they were reaching the semi-final or the final of the European Cup. Um, They were performing very well and they were easily the best football team in England. And Brian Clough arrived there and he tried to completely change them, change the way they played, who they were. And the players uh, rebelled against it, and they they passively, aggressively resisted him. And as a result, they got defeated in game after game, and he got fired. Uh, Later in his career, he took another small, relatively unknown uh, club called Nottingham Forest, and over a few years built them up, um, uh, won the English First Division, won the European Cup two years running, and became uh, one of the most successful football managers in, in the history of English soccer. Uh, so the, the Leeds United period was a great failure in his career, and it was this failure where um, he, he didn't do a very good fitness assessment. If he thought about it properly and if he'd had enough empathy with Leeds and the board of directors at Leeds, he would have recognized that he was not a good fit he wasn't the right guy because Leeds didn't need a change. They needed a continuation of what they'd been doing before. And they needed someone to come in and just manage the team the way the previous manager had been doing it with the same set of players playing the same style, the same tactics and, and so on. And really, uh, Brian Clough should have passed on that opportunity and, and taken another job somewhere else. But at the time, it was, it was too attractive. It was the, the best team in England, one of the three or four best teams in Europe. And he couldn't say no. And it was a spectacular failure. And uh, from a change management perspective, it, it's a very enlightening story. And it's a, it's a beautiful movie with uh, Michael Sheen playing Brian Clough, uh, fantastic characterization, some other great actors in it, wonderful script, very well-written. And um, if you're looking for something to stream off uh, your favorite streaming service in the next few nights, um, The Damned United, uh, starring uh, Michael Sheen as Brian Clough, fantastic.
0: Even if you don't like football. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. Well, um, we've been talking for 90 minutes. What a great conversation. Um, the, the final question I like to ask uh, a lot of my guests, uh, final question is, uh, for you, David, what does it mean to be human?
1: So I need to ask you to repeat that because after 90 minutes, we finally had a drop out on the video there, sorry okay so for you what does it mean to be human oh my goodness so i i think the core of it is first of all accepting that that's true because i think we spend a lot of time particularly in the workplace wishing that our behavior wasn't human that we try to behave much more like machines like robots um and the, 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 the being human thing has this psychological aspect to it and this sociological aspect to it, and it definitely has ups and downs. And we need to recognize that, that everyone in our workplace um, suffers in the same way that they, they, we all suffer with the human condition. So understanding who you are as an individual critical important understanding who other people are around you will help you empathize with them better understanding who you are as a social group so really getting to grips with your identity and then asking yourself whether you're comfortable with it whether your behavior is you know congruent so i I live here in northern spain in the basque country and the, the basques are very proud of their identity you know they uh Um, They have their own language, their own history, very separate from the rest of Spain and and the the Castilians. They're very proud of that, but sometimes maybe they just take it a little too far. So here in the Basque Country, we don't have Santa Claus. So Santa doesn't visit the children um, on Christmas Eve and leave the presents uh, under the tree, doesn't come down the chimney. The Basque country has a long history of mining and a you know, very industrial region, a lot of mines here in the mountains and the hills. Um, so the, uh, the, the presents are delivered to the Basque children by a, a bearded gentleman called Oranchero, and it translates as Miner Zero, the very first miner in the Basque country. So they, they have their own legend of who brings the presents for the children and at some point, you really have to say to yourself, "Is that adding value?" That, uh, for a you know relatively small region of the world and small population, um, as they, these kids grow up, do they feel alienated from the rest of the world by the fact they didn't have Santa Claus or not? And which battles do you want to fight? You know, what's really important to you from an identity perspective and. How hard do you have to underscore it? So, uh, you know, understand who you are and then recognize that we're inherently social animals. We are herd, pack, flock animals. And the concept that, you know, everyone should be equal um, is, uh, you know, I need to be careful how I say this. It's not it's not congruent with the, the, the human condition. Uh, communism, for, you know, as an example, you would say, well, it's a wonderful theory, but it's not, it doesn't fit with human reality because any pack animals does inherently some social structure. They're inherently the leaders and the followers and the laggards. And they're inherently, depending on situation and context, people that we look to to lead us, and therefore you walk into a room, your company, software department, IT department, marketing department, whatever it is, and there's a group of people working there. That's a little pack, it's a little herd, there's a social structure in there. And how those people determine the social status could be completely hidden to you. And I had a friend as a a kid, quite a few friends in in central Scotland who were farmers, and dairy farmers. And one of my friends were about eight years old. We were playing on his farm the weekend and his father went out to round up the cows and bring them into the milking shed. And my friend said to me, the cows go into the milking shed in the same order every day. And this really just blew my mind, you know, the idea that these cows scattered randomly in the field somehow shuffled their way into some, some, some defined order because the cows themselves understood the, the, the social hierarchy, the ranking. And uh, these things are facts of life. They are, if you like, the rocks. You know, there's who we are as a person and a social group, who the social group is as an identity, and the fact there's a social status in there are very complex social status, depending on different contexts and different risks that we're dealing with. These are all rocks. They're, they're, they're things you can't wish away. So when you're thinking about managing people, leading them, encouraging them to change, you need to recognise that these are an, an inherently rocks in the system and uh, the, for me that's what being human is that we have uh, this sense of identity we're pack animals we're part of our you know many groups perhaps that each have their own identities and within those groups we play different roles and we have different expectations upon us and different status and and when you try to change anything that disrupts that, people are inherently fearful of it. So that, that's the, the, um, the, the final thing for me. People are afraid of change that affects their individual identity, their social group of identity, or their social status in that group, their social status in the group. So if you have a pack of Java developers and you suggest to them that we're going to build the new product and a new technology and with a new language like um, Scala, you've basically just thrown a little hand grenade into the middle of that social group and blown it apart. And the consequence of that is that people will be very fearful of what's coming out the other side. And all of that fear is just inherently human. So, as a change agent, you can either choose to create the fear and the chaos and then have to deal with that, or you can find a way to go around it to not create the fear and the chaos, to take your herd of Java developers and slowly evolve them into some new identity.
0: Awesome. Okay. Thank you very much. For people who want to learn more, where's the best place for them to go?
1: Well, it, for me, I think our website, uh, Um, There are many links off there to a whole bunch of different sub sites. Um, of course, several books, Kanban, successful evolutionary change, for the technology business, the best known one, the best selling one, fit for purpose. And also the very recent Kanban maturity model
0: book, uh, uh-huh. All very good places to, to start: Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and you It's been a wonderful conversation, and uh, thanks again. See you Thank you.: The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on first humans human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.